European Hearts Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 39, Issue 16, Focus Issue on Atrial Fibrillation, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucia. Atrial Fibrillation and Arrhythmias, Novel Risk Assessment, Proper Anticoagulation, and Ablation. For centuries, the pulse of patients was the only access to the heart. Irregular pulse, most likely reflecting atrial fibrillation, was first described by the Andalusian philosopher Moses Maimonides in the 11th century. After him, William Stokes, Carol Friedrich Venkerbach, and James Mackenzie described what we would today consider atrial fibrillation. With the advent of the ECG by Willem Eindhoven in 1901, Atrial fibrillation was later clearly defined by him and Sir Thomas Lewis. The relation of atrial fibrillation and stroke, and more recently cognitive decline and dementia, and prevention thereof by anticoagulants, was only established decades later. Today, it is clear that the major cause of morbidity and mortality in atrial fibrillation is its association with embolic stroke and that anticoagulation can largely prevent it. With the development of non-vitamin K antagonists, or NOACs, anticoagulation in such patients has become easier and more commonly used. The 2018 European Heart Rhythm Association Practical Guide on the use of non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants in patients with atrial fibrillation by Jan Steffel of the ESC Scientific Document Group is a timely document for practicing cardiologists. NOACs are an increasingly preferred alternative to vitamin K antagonists, particularly in patients just starting on anticoagulation. However, Many unresolved questions on how to optimally use these agents in specific clinical situations remain. A writing group of the European Heart Rhythm Association identified 20 clinical scenarios for which, based on available evidence, practical answers are presented. Unlike vitamin K antagonists, for which INR measurements are required, Compliance with NOACs is more difficult to assess. Lien de Steg and colleagues from the University Hasselt in Belgium evaluated telemonitoring-based feedback improves adherence to non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants intake in patients with atrial fibrillation in a randomized single-blind crossover trial in 48 patients on NOACs using the medication event monitoring system. The system tracked NOAC intake during daily telemonitoring, telemonitoring with immediate telephone feedback, and an observation phase without daily transmissions of three months each. Telemonitoring only led to very high taking and regimen adherence of 97.4% and 93.8% respectively. Direct feedback further improved both to 99.0% and 96.8% respectively. Observation without daily monitoring resulted in a significantly lower adherence of 94.3%. Adherence was significantly higher for once daily than twice daily NOACs. 
feedback intervention had an incremental cost of €344,289 to prevent one stroke, but this could be as low as €15,488 in high-risk patients with low adherence and optimised technology. Thus, telemonitoring is a cost-effective approach that improves NOAC adherence, particularly if combined with feedback. These important results are put into context in a thoughtful editorial by Gregory Y.H. Lipp from the City Hospital in Birmingham, UK. The detection of atrial fibrillation remains a challenge as not all episodes are symptomatic but are still associated with a risk for stroke. Prashanthan Sanders and colleagues from the University of Adelaide and Royal Adelaide Hospital in Australia sought to determine stroke risk in subclinical atrial fibrillation in their meta-analysis entitled Subclinical Device-Detected Atrial Fibrillation and Stroke Risk, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Over 1 to 2.5 years, Subclinical atrial fibrillation was noted with cardiac implantable electronic devices in 35% of patients with pacing indication and strongly associated with clinical atrial fibrillation with an odds ratio of 5.7. The annual stroke risk in subclinical atrial fibrillation above a defined cutoff duration was 2.4 fold increased as compared to that below cutoff duration. In studies with an available CHADS2 score of 2.1 plus or minus 0.1, subclinical atrial fibrillation was associated with annual stroke rate of 2.76 per 100 person years. After excluding those without atrial fibrillation, only 17% of strokes occurred in ongoing atrial fibrillation. Subclinical atrial fibrillation was noted in 29% within 30 days preceding stroke. Thus, subclinical atrial fibrillation strongly predicts clinical atrial fibrillation and is associated with elevated stroke risk, albeit lower than that of symptomatic atrial fibrillation. Thrombotic material embolizing into the brain in atrial fibrillation is mainly located in the left atrial appendix. The CHA2DS2VASC is commonly used for risk stratification, but left atrial parameters are not included. Euroen J. Bax and colleagues from the Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands set out to assess left atrial function to identify patients with atrial fibrillation at high risk of stroke, new insights from a large registry in 1,361 patients with newly diagnosed atrial fibrillation. 7% developed ischemic stroke with an annual stroke rate of 0.9% and an incident stroke rate in the first year of 2.6%. Left atrial reservoir and conduit strains were reduced, and PA tissue Doppler imaging lengthened in those with stroke, despite similar left ventricular dimensions, left ventricular ejection fraction, global longitudinal strain, and left atrial volumes. Left atrial reservoir strain and PA tissue Doppler imaging were independently associated with stroke, in a model including CHA2DS2VASC score, age, and anticoagulant use. 
Thus, assessment of left atrial reservoir strain and PA tissue Doppler imaging after CHA2-DS2-VASC scoring provides additional risk stratification for stroke. The practical implications of these findings are further discussed in an editorial by Patrizio Lancelotti from the University Hospital of Liège in Belgium. According to guidelines, catheter ablation is indicated in patients with symptomatic paroxysmal atrial fibrillation resistant to antiarrhythmic drug therapy. In their manuscript, Pulmonary Vein Isolation with versus without continued antiarrhythmic drug treatment in subjects with recurrent atrial fibrillation results from the Powder AF Multicenter Randomized Trial. Matthias Deutschever and colleagues from the University of Ghent in Belgium report the results of a multicenter randomized study in 153 patients undergoing contact force guided pulmonary vein isolation for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation in whom previously ineffective antiarrhythmic drug therapy was continued during a three-month blanking period. If free of atrial fibrillation at the end of the blanking period, patients were randomly assigned to continue or discontinue antiarrhythmic drugs and followed for one year after the procedure. The primary endpoint occurred in 2.7% on antiarrhythmic drugs and 21.9% in the drug-free group. The antiarrhythmic drug group had a lower rate of repeat ablation of 1.4% versus 19.2%, and fewer unscheduled arrhythmia-related healthcare visits of 2.7% versus 20.5%, while quality of life was similar. Thus, in patients free of atrial fibrillation three months after ablation, continued use of previously ineffective antiarrhythmics reduces the recurrence of atrial tachyarrhythmia in the first year. These results are put into context in an editorial by James P. Dalbert from the Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina, USA. Besides atrial fibrillation, other supraventricular arrhythmias, such as AV reentry, WPW syndrome, among others, are also important. With focus on new advances since the last ESC guidelines, the European Heart Rhythm Association consensus document on the management of supraventricular arrhythmias endorsed by Heart Rhythm Society, Asia-Pacific Heart Rhythm Society, and Sociedad Latinoamericana de Estimulación Cardiaca y Electrofisiología, led by Demosthenes G. Catritsis and colleagues on behalf of the task force from the European Heart Rhythm Association, with representation from the U.S. Heart Rhythm Society, Asia-Pacific Heart Rhythm Society, and the Sociedad Latinoamericana de Estimulación Cardiaca y Electrofisiología, discusses the current state-of-the-art of treatment of such arrhythmias. The consensus document summarizes current developments in the field and provides recommendations for the management of patients with supraventricular tachycardia, but not of atrial fibrillation, based on the principles of evidence-based medicine. While supraventricular arrhythmias are mainly symptomatic, and on their own, not lethal, 
Ventricular arrhythmias are a major cause of sudden death. While ischemic heart disease is the main cause, genetically determined channelopathies are rare but important. Among them, loss of function mutations in the HERG gene associated with reduced IKR current cause long QT syndrome type 2. Four different mutation classes define the molecular mechanisms impairing HERG. Lumacafta is a drug acting on channel trafficking successfully tested for cystic fibrosis. In a fast-track manuscript entitled Identification of a Targeted and Testable Antiarrhythmic Therapy for LQT2 Using a Patient-Specific Cellular Model, Peter J. Schwartz and colleagues from the IRCCS Instituto Oxologico Italiano in Milan, Italy, hypothesized that Lumacafta might also rescue HERG trafficking defects in long QT syndrome type 2. From five long QT syndrome type 2 patients, they generated induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes harboring class 1 and 2 mutations. Only class 2 cardiomyocytes showed significant shortening of corrected field potential durations after Lumacafta, which prevented arrhythmias by reducing RYR2S2808 phosphorylation and also calcium handling irregularities in both class 1 and 2 induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes. Lumacafta was more effective than nadolol in preventing arrhythmias in both class 1 and 2 induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes. Thus, Lumacafta, a drug in clinical use, can rescue the phenotype of long QT syndrome type 2 in induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes, particularly those derived from class 2 mutation patients. Therefore, clinical testing in long QT syndrome type 2 patients not protected by beta blockers should be considered. These provocative findings are critically discussed in an editorial by Craig T. January from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the United States. Electrical injuries are a commonly encountered hazard in both the home and workplace. In a clinical review on Electrical Cardiac Injuries, Current Concepts and Management, Elwa Marajan and colleagues from the Hôpital Européen Georges Pompidou in Paris, France, Note that clinicians are often uncomfortable when faced with patients presenting with electric shock. Electrical injuries can range from minor skin burns to life-threatening organ damage. A thorough clinical assessment to ascertain the path of current through the body and possible internal injury is essential. A main concern in an apparently stable individual is the delayed occurrence of arrhythmias. The present review summarizes current knowledge in pathophysiology, manifestations and management of electrical injuries, with specific focus on cardiac effects. Arrhythmias can also occur in apparently healthy individuals, and in particular during competitive sports, an issue that is addressed by Sanjay Sharma and colleagues from St George's, University of London, in the UK in a current opinion entitled 
International Recommendations for Electrocardiographic Interpretation in Athletes, a variety of mostly hereditary, structural, or electrical cardiac disorders are associated with sudden cardiac death in young athletes, the majority of which can be identified by abnormalities on a resting 12-lead ECG. A critical need exists for physician education in ECG interpretation that distinguishes physiological adaptations in athletes from abnormal findings. Since the 2010 European Society of Cardiology recommendations for ECG interpretation in athletes, ECG standards have evolved, pushed by growing evidence, establishing guideline refinements. International experts in sports cardiology, inherited cardiac disease, and sports medicine herein provide an update on contemporary standards for ECG interpretation in athletes. This statement represents an international consensus and provides expert opinion-based recommendations linking ECG abnormalities with conditions associated with sudden cardiac death. The overwhelming data on millions of people's health records, whole genome sequencing, imaging, sensor, societal and publicly available data present a rapidly expanding digital trace of health. Harry Hemingway and colleagues from the Big Data at Heart Consortium review this problem in their article Big Data from Electronic Health Records for Early and Late Translational Cardiovascular Research, Challenges and Potential. Today, it is known what data are potentially available, how they might be accessed, how to build and maintain public trust, to develop standards for defining disease and tools for scalable, replicable science and equipping the clinical and scientific workforce with new interdisciplinary skills. Opportunities claimed for big health record data include richer profiles of health and disease from birth to death and from the molecular to the societal scale, accelerated understanding of disease causation and progression, discovery of new mechanisms and treatment-relevant disease subphenotypes, understanding health and diseases in whole populations and whole health systems, and returning actionable feedback loops to improve and potentially disrupt existing models of research and care with greater efficiency. Early achievements include 1. Discovery of fundamental biological processes, for example, linking exome sequences to lifelong electronic health records. 2. Drug development, with genomic approaches to drug target validation, for example, precision medicine using DNA integrated into electronic health records for preemptive pharmacogenomics. Late translation includes 1. Learning health systems with outcome trials integrated into clinical care. 2. Citizen-driven health, for example with 24-7 multi-parameter monitoring of patients to improve outcomes. 3. Population-based linkages of multiple EHR sources for higher resolution clinical epidemiology and public health. Thus, high volumes of inherently diverse, or big, electronic health record data are a novel aspect of cardiovascular research and care. Such big data have the potential to improve our understanding of disease causation and classification, relevant for early translation 
and to contribute actionable analytics to improve health and healthcare. The editors hope that this issue of the European Hearts Journal will find the interest of its readers.